Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Drew Estelle is an expert in shooting instruction, CQB, law enforcement training, and the learning process in general. And according to the bio that he sent me, he is also an expert in eating Oreos. That remains to be seen. He served for over 10 years in the Army Special Forces, and after being medically discharged, he founded Bayer Solutions, spelled B-A-E-R, which provides firearm and tactical training for professionals and patriots all across the country. In his Army career, he's been deployed to numerous combat zones, and he's had unique experiences that bring a different perspective to his training. He's seen what bad training can do to a team and an individual, as well as what a good training can do to the same people. This is what the experience on which Estelle bases methodology of training. He's recently authored a book that was called Process and Progress Pistol about this methodology, which shows you step-by-step how to structure your training plan for faster improvement in both your technique and your results, whether you're a new hobbyist or a seasoned pro. In this, he outlines a proven approach to help you experiment and develop your own unique personal training and style. His YouTube channel and IG are sick, and they have some incredible pragmatic content. He's also the co-owner of At Live Agonic, which has belts, pants, and more on the way. Check out bearsolutions.com and his YouTube channel, as well as IG Bear Solutions. Man, thank you so much for being here, Dave Drew. Ian connected us, and once I started really diving deep into what you're doing, there's a lot there. Again, it comes through even on social media. You can see the people that there's a lot of depth in that. There's a lot of texture as opposed to a person that's just very one-dimensional. And it's like, this is a gun. This is where it goes bang, go. There's a lot more to that. So we were talking about our mutual admiration of Stephen Pressfield. Can you tell me a little bit about the Warrior Ethos book, how that influenced you, and then how you continue to live with those ethos every day? Absolutely. So first of all, thank you very much for having me on. And I'm glad Ian got us together. So you wrote a great podcast, man. Just like we were talking about earlier, Stephen Pressfield, that was a great podcast you did. And I, I've loved hearing him on other podcasts before. And I've read his book, obviously, Gates Fire, whatever, everybody has. But the Warrior Ethos really stuck out to me. I remember I was in Iraq in 2010. Is it 9, 10, or 20? I don't know. There's a few trips, but I think it was my first or second trip. So one of the captains there actually was giving me some business advice. He had some stuff going on that luckily served me later in life. And he gave me a download, like a PDF copy of it, because it's a short thing. And I remember reading that. And the thing that stuck out to me the most was the guilt-based and shame-based cultures. So that made so much sense to me. Because I think from where we come from, especially in Army Special Forces is what I did. I was in 5th Special Forces for a little bit, about 10 years. So 12 years in the military. And it always confused me, like, why aren't more people like us? It's like, hold on. <laughs> They're asking the same thing. <laughs> they, they look at us like we're like, just what are these idiots? But in that world, a lot of times we compare it to being in the lion's den. Like you walk in every day to work every day and you better have it together because there's a chance your bags are in the hallway. And I remember when I showed up to my team, you show up and you go to the B team, right? It's like the the company command element that kind of controls the other six teams of the company. And I remember I got chewed out by the senior Bravo. So Bravo is my job, the weapon sergeant on the team. And he was the senior guy in the company. He actually works for a company called Magpul, or at least he did last I heard. His name is John Knipe. Great guy. Phenomenal dude. And I remember sitting there in the company and I'm just, I have no idea. I'm terrified. You know, I'm a 23-year-old kid, basically. I don't think I'm a kid, but looking back, I'm a child compared to these 40-year-olds that are on the team in late 20s, you know, other than me. He was like, hey, effing new guy. I'm like, Roger, Sergeant, you know, how, yes, you know, <laughs> and I'm doing my best to be like, stand up, look him straight in the eye and do all that. And I'm just like, what did I do now? And he's like, you're going to 2-4. I was like, what? 
he was mad. He's like, that's the best team in the company. That's the best team in the battalion, hands down. And you're going to it as a new guy. Other guys have been fighting to get over there and you're going to go there. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, hell yeah. You know, <laughs> and, you know, but my face was like, like, Roger that. I know how this works. Roger that. I got it. I understand how this works. And it's dynamic. He was pissed. And I was really fortunate to go to that team. But going back to that shame-based and guilt-based culture, the first day you show up, you think because you passed the Q course, you've been selected, you know, and then you pass the Q course and you're a green beret. No, you are not a green beret. <laughs> you were taught the bare minimum, no pun intended, Mercilus. You taught the bare minimum <laughs> to show up to a team and they basically say, now you can learn all that stuff that's really going to, not really going to matter, but now you can really truly learn what it means. And doing that, it was like, oh my God, these guys are so experienced, you know, and we had a wall that was all the passport photos of our guys when you get your government passport. And they just, every guy that leaves the team puts their picture on there. And it's just a pin on like a corkboard. And they went by and said, come here, that guy is here now. That guy's doing this now. That guy's doing this now. This guy's a Sergeant Major. This guy's doing this. And I'm like, oh my God, these guys are legends. But that lion's den mentality was there from the very beginning. You're constantly being assessed. And understanding that guilt-based and shame-based culture, in SF, it's very much a shame-based culture. No matter what problems you had, doesn't matter. And I remember Frank, one of the senior Charlie's on the team, great guy. He said, I don't care what you think about anybody else in this team. I don't care if you guys get in a fist fight, which has happened. I don't care if you guys throw a chair at each other. I don't care if you get in an argument. We don't care. Outside of this team, everybody looks at us like these guys are solid. They're the best of friends. They're true professionals. Keep it all internal. Never bring shame to the team. And I was like, that was kind of the first interaction of that. And then later on, I read the book. I was like, oh, all this makes so much sense now. And so seeing that and getting out, now I see the guilt-based culture and I see that side of it outside of the military and working with different companies and doing stuff like that. It's been just eye-opening, but at least now I can understand it. And I'm really glad I read that. And philosophy wasn't something new to you before that, I imagine. You'd already delved into some other works, I would assume. Before the warrior ethos? Before the warrior ethos and even before your service. So growing up, I read a lot of history books. Like my dad was real big on history. So I read a lot of like Jed Berg's, I think it's by W.E.B. Griffin. I read the Dick Marcinko books, which, you know, the fiction and the nonfiction. I read all of that stuff. And like growing up, I was like, this is what I want to do. Because my other two options, pro football or professional country Western singer, probably ain't going to happen. You know, so I'm not, you know, I played football in college, but by no means was I like good. You know, I was better at working out than I was probably at playing and lacrosse too. But with that said, I read a lot about that. And that really turned me on. I didn't really get into the mindset aspect of it other than just the pure autobiographies and the true stories or the what are the historical fiction type books until I read that warrior ethos. And that really kind of kicked off that mindset and the perceptions of things. Then later on, I've read a ton of books after that. You know, I had a great influence in my life. He worked with me at fifth group. He's a civilian, but he's got a doctorate in like mental performance. And he's like, read this. I'm like, got it. Mindset by Carol Dweck. Read this. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Read this. The Rise of Superman. And then I'd be like, you read this. Relentless by Tim Grover. You know, and then the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But I will say that Stephen Pressville really kind of started that for me and made me think about it. Because once you do, you realize there's a whole separate side of this. Like you're only operating at 50% capacity. But once you start understanding this, now you have a better chance of using all that bandwidth that you're capable of. In my experience, the more that we see these ethos and the more that we see these lessons, we see it everywhere. We see it interaction with our loved one. We see it with a coworker. You see it with people in traffic that are pissed off that somebody's on their phone or the person on the phone that's pissed off that you're honking at them in traffic. It's like, it's all there. So once you grew it in on Santo Bruce Lee's protege, I'm an instructor under him. And he said, if I teach you one technique, you learn a technique. If I teach you a concept, I teach you a thousand techniques. And that never left me because whether it be a straight punch, whether it be a hook, whether it be a blade, whether it be drawing a weapon, it's the same principle. It's like, am I getting there first? Am I indirect? Am I waiting? Am I hesitating? Where am I falling behind on this? Where should I have been faster? All those things. So it serves us any arena that we enter with it, if we're willing to connect the dots, show where the overlap and that dovetail comes together. It does. And I think too, on top of that, when you learn all those techniques or you learn that other half of this, like we're talking about, it makes you way more understanding to the other person. It makes you more understanding of yourself, which is a massive win any day of the week, but it makes you more understanding of why people are doing something. So for me, I'm an instructor. We have a lot of other things going on, but at the end of the day, I provide a service. And when people pay me money, they are showing up notebooks ready, ready to go. And they're wanting to learn and you better deliver. 
So like you have to get their money's worth because this is not cheap. It's easily a grand or more for a weekend, two grand. Class registration is the cheapest part. So they show up and it's like, well, now you're having a problem, right? So here's an example. You go to the shooting range, you know, and you shoot, you know, your pistol, pistol especially. How many times have you heard you're jerking the trigger? You're anticipating the shot. You mean procession? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my Lord. Like nobody ever told me what that means. And what did it take? It took me figuring out for myself and then going, how come no one explains this? So when someone's been told the same thing over and over and over, and they're not getting any better, they're literally coming to you saying, hey, like Mopolridge stuff, you know, like I need help. I don't know what this means. Fix me. So you have to understand what they're going through. So I think that's a lot of it. It's made me a lot better instructor. So we have to understand people, which is why we do a questionnaire before people even come to the course. We ask them everything we can. And we phrase things kind of similar, but different ways. There's little tests in there. So I can look at it and be like, man, you don't get it. Or this other person, you do get it. And we kind of organize them that way. I think that's everything in any kind of teaching. When we teach, one teach, but two learn. I've taught martial art classes where to the man in the class, they were all dropping their hand. I was like, why the fuck? And then I look at myself when I taught it. I was like, oh, that's because I'm the one to show that. I happen to be saying something like I'm talking about this and then they're seeing this. They're like, oh, so I need to be doing this stuff. It's like, no. And that's on me. So if I'm not doing it correctly, like you said, if everybody has a seven o'clock pull in your class, maybe we're showing something wrong. So that's key. Exactly. It is, man. And you were also saying how just the layer of depth of kind of people that come into your class. It's not just a guy that's like wanting to plink or just a guy that has got a whole lot of ammo and food saved up for something. There's a huge spectrum of people that come to your class. Oh yeah. Yeah. It runs from one end of the spectrum to the other. So in the military, I think the biggest shock for guys when they get out of the military or even law enforcement, they start getting into the world of professional firearms instruction. They're doing this. They're a trainer or an instructor, however you want to put it. And then there's the coach aspect. So Those are all three different things. So something like when you're in the military and law enforcement, people are told to be there. When I was working with other Green Berets, those guys show up, they have to be there. So there's an aspect of like, let's get this done. And some guys are really into it and make themselves better, but there's a lot going on, but it's just part of the schedule. So a lot of times it's like, they show up, they're like, I know how to do this, but do what you can, make me better. Got it. Move on. In the outside world, it's not like that. Everybody is paying money to be there. So you don't have, I'm not specifically talking about SF, but we know that the stereotype of the military, like we guys like to drink. So, you know, you go out do training, it's not uncommon. You know, these are wild dudes and they still perform. They might be a little hungover the next day and they got a headache, but they're still out there. Every rep got it. They're doing what they need to do. And as soon as they can, they go puke in the back and they come back. Something along those lines, you know, maybe that's a little extreme, but similar. When you show up and people are paying to be at your course, they are prepared. And they expect a lot out of you. And it's very, very different when you have ready and willing students. And there's been a few times where we did law enforcement courses. These guys have showed up. They paid out of pocket. And we know law enforcement. I don't care what anybody's opinion is about law enforcement. They're underpaid. They're underappreciated. They're overworked and they're undertrained, period. They do not get what they need to do their job. And you can take that and apply it to almost every bad situation that happened some of them in some way, shape or form. So these guys show up, they paid out of pocket. They make 35 grand a year. They got a wife and two kids. Their wife's in college trying to get it done. They live paycheck to paycheck. They've saved up money. The department won't approve the funding because they can't. Yeah. No CLE funding. Right. Exactly. They have to do it out of pocket because they believe in this. Yeah. And every department's different. You know, some departments do a lot of departments don't. So they're even using their own ammo sometimes, which is as you know, ungodly expensive right now. Appreciate that. <laughs> Wherever we want to put blame there. But they show up and they're like, I paid money. This is the one thing I can afford all year to make me better at my job. And they, they sit there and they glare at you. And they they just got a notepad and pen out. And you're like, all right, this ain't like the military where it's, you know, we're all having a good time. And, you know, it, we understand, but uh, we'll do this again next week. This is their one shot. You got to get it all in. And that was a big difference getting out. And to me, that's a lot of pressure. When these guys leave, I want them to say, hey, man, that was the best class I've ever had. And if they don't, I feel like I'd fail. So it'll, they usually say like, dude, this was great. Like, okay, cool. But if they don't, it makes me mad at myself that we need to prepare better. What exactly are you looking for? And we do AARs after every class, actor action review. We do all that. And we're constantly trying to be better. So that was a big surprise going from military world to the outside of the world. And I absolutely agree, especially with this teaching component that you have, this coaching component, that in and of itself is an art. We can have anybody that can go up and regurgitate the SOP on something, the standard operating procedure of something. But 
a person that can come up and like you said, you're actually paying attention to me, to my body language, to the look on my face that I don't know what you're talking about. And the fact that I'm about to hold a weapon downrange, like that's not only dangerous for everybody else involved, but it's more dangerous that I leave still not knowing what's going on. So you have this, I call it pragmatic empathy. You know where they're coming from, just like with the warrior ethos. You understand the other side of the coin. So because you understand what the expectation is or what the fear is or what the desired outcome is, now you can better serve that. And then that informs the questions that you're asking them, that informs the corrections that you make, that informs the way that you teach everything. So now, just like you said, we cut through all the bullshit. We get right to the stuff that really fucking matters. Because for this person, like you said, this may be their only opportunity. And if all they're going to do for the rest of the year is dry fire this, and that becomes the habit, we need to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to make sure that that serves them. Because if they do have to unholster this weapon, there's only going to be one opportunity. They don't get a chance to warm up. They don't get a redo. And this is why that skill set is so important. It is. And so I kind of blew past your initial question, the spectrum, but what you said is perfect and it can bring it back. So talking about how we get somebody for, this might be the only opportunity they have, right? And how important it is that when you own a gun, I don't say you're a liability, but you can be. If you're not, you're accountable for every bullet that goes in the gun. You're accountable for every bullet that comes out of that gun, period. There's no room for error. There's no discussion. That's it. And so let's look at the different types of people. So we mentioned earlier, I mentioned the lady Jan. Okay. She is a professor at a major university. She was around the area, uh, just down the road, actually, when the Virginia Tech active shooter happened, was present for it. Now she is a professor at that school. She, and that rings out to her all the time. So she came to a course and she's one of the coolest ladies, man. I'm telling you, she like makes her own bows. She's just a little thing, right? She's in there squatting, you know, like she's power lifting. She's got <laughs> making her own bows and hatchets and like throwing axes. And That's like, awesome. this is a leopard skin thing I made. I'm like, whatever, you know, like wolf skin or bear skin or something. I'm like, wow, you're impressive lady. Like I'm feeling a little, like, I feel like my masculine just dropped it while I'm talking to you. And I, yeah. And I was like, damn Green Beret, you know, so here's my man card. Yeah. <laughs> but people like that. And then you have these two, I don't want to say which school they go to because schools nowadays, but they're in graduate school. One of them was an aeronautical engineering, did his master's for that. And then his girlfriend or vice versa, I can't remember. And the other one, the group, she goes, but one of them did physics. They were a physics major. And like, I'm like, okay, they were ridiculously smart very intelligent people, but they look like they should be on the TV show, The Big Bang Theory. So just put it like that. And that's who they were. They were phenomenal people. That's my favorite show, by the way, if you want to know. Oh, it's hilarious. Huh? Oh my God. It's so good. I went to the same high school as Sheldon, Jim Parsons, the actor. Oh, for real? Yeah. So when he's, yeah. So he's talking about East Texas. I'm like, yes. <laughs> he's right on. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, little trivia. No. But they had a break-in. So he was at home, he owns a rifle and he keeps it by his bed. It's not the best neighborhood, but it's not terrible, but they're on a college budget. So bump in the night or something like that, there's someone at the door and the guy kicks in the door, banging the down the door, breaks through. He realizes, goes to the hallway and just puts his sights on target. This guy comes to the door and he's like, I'm breathing. <sighs> you know, the sights moving, you know, my heart is just pounding through my ears and I can feel it in my eyeballs. I feel like I'm just shaking uncontrollably and that dots me, but that dots right at the doorway. This guy kicks it in, steps in, looks at him, backs up, just like, all right, and walks out. And he's like, I didn't shoot. And I was like, oh, you know, but I don't know the laws in your area and everything else. But at the same time, that was eye-opening for him. They came to the course. Two weeks later, I get a message. The lady, his girlfriend, I forget her name. She was in her car. She pulled in and we had done a concealed carry applications course. It's actually the course I teach with Ian. Nice. And so we do this together a lot. But we also kind of do it separately. Phenomenal course. So we talk a lot about pre-assault cues, what to recognize, how to keep distance, how to manage a threat. You know, that's a lot of it. You're not getting your concealed carry license here. We're talking about how to actually put this into application. So she was in her car. She pulled up and she noticed there was a guy walking down the sidewalk and she pulls in her driveway. She's like, something doesn't feel right. She's like, in my head, I'm like, why is he in a hoodie and sweatpants? It's July, August. And I'm like, mm-hmm. So she's like, I pulled in and I looked at my side view and I saw him walking. He's kind of looking out of the corner. You can see it kind of, his head's kind of turning towards me. Pretty so cute. So she locks the doors, grabs her gun and she just sits there. And then she looks, she loses sight. She loses sight of him at the rear view mirror. And she looks to her side. She didn't see him. He's in the blind spot already. And he comes up and tries to rip this door open. She's got her gun right there. Just like, hey, and this dude saw it and just took off. And she was like, thank God. She goes, I don't know. She goes, I never thought about that stuff before. 
and this is not a, I'm trying to promote myself and say, oh, it's because she came to our training. It's because I'm not doing that. At the end of the day, she's the one who has to put all this in. We just get to show you and we get to take you through things that allow you to put that into play. So it becomes, you know, more of what you're thinking about your thought processes. And luckily she did. So you take that, we've got that spectrum of college professor, college kids. We've had doctors, we have lawyers, we've had super duper rich people. We have people that are not what you expect, every shape, every color. I had a guy in the class that he works in the adult film industry and he does the same sex stuff and the opposite sex stuff. And he owns a company and now he's doing his thing. I'm not going to lie. He was awesome. He was one of the coolest guys I've ever met. You know what I mean? Like, but this guy, and he talked to me about so much stuff. I would never have that experience meeting somebody like that if I was in the military, still doing this, or if I had that narrow mindset, but you see these different people come. And then we got the cops and we got the military. I have one cop that's been in two or three courses and he's been in two shootings. And then they were life-saving for him and others when he did it. He didn't want to do it. He talks about, it, he's like, I don't want to pull that trigger, but I did. And it happened that fast. So like, we see this broad spectrum and people are like, oh, I bet none of these people like, bro, I got a dude who's a porn star that's been to a class. And he's one of the coolest motherfuckers I ever met in my life. And I don't want to say his name, whatever, this stuff, but he he does that. And if you saw him today, I believe he's might've transitioned to other stuff, but like, I love this guy. If I saw this guy at SHOT Show or around Las Vegas where he lives, I'd be like, yeah, man, let's go get dinner. You know what I mean? Like, cool. So I hate when people are like, they see that stereotype of the crazy prepper guy, man, I ain't going to be no <laughs> victim. 3%, right? Do those people exist? Yeah. But they also show up sometimes and they go, oh man, I don't know what I don't know. I'm like, absolutely. So I hope this opens your eyes a little bit. And let me see that. Yeah. And so for some hardware kind of questions, when people are getting started out, they can get your book or they come train with you. Would you recommend nine millimeter versus 45 versus 10 millimeter? I was going to say, these are all the classic questions, but people ask are going to ask them. So I'll have you address them to show that there's a lot of depth to these kind of things. Sure, man. So the 9 mil 45, let's start with that. What do you have already? Whatever you have, use it. People can shoot a 22 and be deadly with it. It's just how you wield your sword. You can have a samurai sword or you can have a broad sword. Well, it depends on how you wield the weapon. And it's the Indian, not the arrow. So it doesn't matter. At the same time, if you're going to go buy something, just get a nine millimeter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like make it easy. You know, the ballistics have come up. It's fine. The ammo's a little bit cheaper. Like you're probably going to be, it's more comfortable to shoot. We shot nine millimeter in the military and we shot 40 cal. We were actually one of the few units that had 40 cal because of certain tiers of stuff or whatever. So we got a 40 cal, we're a specialty company. We're an assault troop company. That's all we did was assault called the Civ. So we got special funding and we had that. We shot it. We don't do it anymore. We just shoot nine mil. No one cares. Just go get a nine mil. But if you already have something, just use what you got. Put it this way. Lance Armstrong, or if you don't like Lance Armstrong, pick another cyclist. I don't know. I can't even think of Floyd Landis. No, he did drugs too. Like whoever, right? They all do. I want to hear it. Some cyclist somewhere is going to freak out. Lance Armstrong can beat you on a Walmart hub. <laughs> I don't care about your specialized or seven cycles, you know, road bike that you spent nine grand on. I rode a bike. I was in North Carolina, rode road bikes. I had a $200 trick I got used with baskets on it without shoes. I smoked a bunch of people next to $10,000 bicycles. No one cares. So use what you got. You really don't need that much specialty stuff. As long as you have the minimum a holster, stick with it, learn how to use that good, some extra magazines, and you know, go out and train. That's it. Just dry fire and train. That's what's going to get you there. But if you're looking to buy something, just go buy 9mm. And like you said, it's about shot placement. Again, the ballistics of a 9mm now with the ammo that they have, like you said, like you're battling semantics at that point. Like you get that first shot on placement. And I've read some studies that are saying that most handgun encounters are between zero and six feet at this point. Yeah, that's that contact distance range, right? Exactly. And there's a big argument like, I don't use my sights. In real shootings, you don't use your sights. Bullshit, I did. You know what I mean? And like, it depends on how much you train. So if you take, let's use a police officer, for example, they get a lot of data from cops. They say, in this shooting, did you see their sights? And they're like, no, I didn't see anything. It's like, cool. How much do you shoot your gun? They're like, we qualify once a year. And they barely qualify many times from what I understand. Yeah. And they qualify once a year. Is that their fault? No, not necessarily. Maybe, but depends on the department and the resources available. But you take someone who trains more often, you talk to our guys, like, did you see your sights? Like, yes. The entire time looking like a sewing machine going up and down over and over and over on the target. You're like, cool. Thank you. Well, what is that? That's a difference in training. 
So you look at people who train and I'm wildly taken off from whatever the hell your question was. Sorry. No, no, (laughs) we're here. I love this. Let's go. (laughs) If you look at people that train, right? So you have the lowest standard, which is I train for the test or the qualification. You have the middle, which is I train to a standard, which is a lot of what we try and get people to do. Because if I can set a goal, we, and you can use performance goals, process goals, and outcome goals, right? Whatever you want to you know, do that, I can get you to a certain standard. That'll move you up. And you can train for different standards. And you can set new standards, which are basically outcome goals. You add 5 or 15% and try and get better. You do different stuff. And then you have that third tier. That's we just practice. It doesn't matter the test. It doesn't matter the drill. It doesn't matter anything. We just go out and practice. So who meets that? Well, that's your FBI's HRT. That's Delta. That's SEAL Team 6. That's you know high-level competition shooters. Those are people who have the time and the resources to be able to put in that kind of work because that's a lifestyle at that point. Very few people can do that. So we have different levels. Those are kind of your three right there. I like the way you talk about it in your book. And then have you read Peak? Are you familiar with this? No. It's called Peak. It's by Anders Ericsson. He's passed away now, but he talks about this intention of intentional practice and talks about very much like what you're talking about. And I love that you talk about this on tube and, and on your IG, you're talking about the goal setting again, even in 10th mountain, it was like, there's the army standard or the army bare minimum is what they would call it. And then it's like, if you're the infantry guy, you should be hitting 300. You should be trying to max that thing out because the only two things that we can control is the way that we shoot. And then our conditioning outside of that, everything else is tactics and being able to apply it. But you're never going to regret that you were in better shape to be able to deal with anything that you're in the process of. But even in your book, you talk about this, like you're saying, because for most people, what are they worried about? Okay, I've got 100 rounds or 50 rounds, whatever they can afford. I'm going to the range. What can I do with this? Okay, I can get a decent grouping in a controlled environment quietly at 10 feet. What you're talking about is much more giving those standards, giving these SOPs to look towards to allow them to grow and to get better progressively. And you've got a great video on that, but I think that that's so important because for most people, like you said, even the military, it's like, okay, you need to put 500 rounds down range, then you guys can break and get chow. It's like, okay, the faster we get these done, the faster. But I think that people don't understand this. Like, and I remember hearing this in the martial arts, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. So like you said, if I'm up there and I'm jerking the trigger and I'm bowling or doing all these like amateur things, that's not gonna help me in the heat of battle. And the way that we do that, like you said, once it starts happening, once the adrenaline dumps into our body, we're doing what we know already, even slower, even more badly, so to speak. So we have to have these things ingrained in this like we're breathing. Well, it's like we heard the term practice makes perfect. And then it was no perfect practice makes perfect. And then it's, well, let me elaborate on that again. It's like practice makes permanent. And it's like, well, which one's true? It's like all three. So let's look at reps. So when we get students in, so let's look at a very experienced person versus a newer shooter, right? And this can apply to anything, any skill you're looking at. This could be sports. This could be someone who's a writer versus someone who's learning to write. It doesn't matter. So you get someone who's been around for a while. They have built that muscle memory, which a lot of people call it. Lanny Bassam with Winning in Mind calls it subconscious competence. Great book. And then more importantly, if you look at that three-stage learning model or whatever you want to call it, you've got the cognitive associative and autonomous stage. Autonomous is like, mastery. Basically, we're automating effort is what we mean. So no matter what, whether what they're doing is right or wrong, they've practiced it long enough, they have made this automated. Muscle memory, myelination, motor skills, blah, 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 blah. There's like a ton of these terms out there. We just prefer to say automated. And you've made it a usable skill. Can I do this skill without consciously thinking about it while performing something else? So we look at that, right? When you take this kind of more experienced person, they've trained a certain way. And then they come to a class and they've got thousands of reps doing this. I've been doing this for 20 years. We're like, absolutely, dude. Well, I'm going to show you something new. And they're like, no. I'm like, okay. So I'm just going to show you how to get that shot off quicker, right? And how to get the sights leveled out so that your sight isn't high, isn't low, isn't left, isn't right. (laughs) We're going to try getting that muzzle on target so we can shoot from full extension and even from compression if you need to. So everything's lined up right in a defensive situation if you need to. And they're like, yeah, I got it. I ain't doing it. It's like, or they try to do it. And it's kind of that fixed mindset. They try it. They don't do it right off the bat. They're like, this is dumb. They usually have these things like this is dumb, stupid, or, you know, whatever. Of course. You're like, okay, well, that's because to override that, let's say it took them 800 reps to start that little myelination process, little stuff going on. Took them 800 reps. It takes 2,400 to begin to cover that up and learn something new. So when someone's learned something for so long, 
that's the fight they're in. So like we get a lot of this. So we help them understand that. It's like, look, man, I'm not telling what you're doing is wrong, but I'm saying if I can save you a 10th of a second, you're going to be reactionary when you draw that gun. You as a cop are usually reactionary because you have all this criteria and legalities and target identification and stuff that has to go into it, especially now, like more so than ever. So you basically have to get shot at first and you can shoot back. So with that said, does a 10th of a second matter? They're like, yes. I'm like, okay. Can I show you how to shave, shave off a tenth of a second? Add this. And they're like, okay, cool. And then what do they do? They shave off a tenth of a second. And then we do a different drill later. And I'm like, hey, man, you reverted back to your old way. Now they're mad. They're like, dang it. I, you know, I'm trying not to. I'm like, I understand, man. You just haven't, you haven't automated that new process. You're still in that cognitive stage. You're still having to think and feel your way through that, which you're not used to doing. So we get a lot of that too. So I think that learning process with our students, as soon as we get them to understand why they are the way they are, and why they feel a certain way about something, why something's hard, it's like eye-opening. And they go, oh, so there's a reason for that? Like, yeah, man, it's not your fault. You're not bad. You're not none of this. It's just the process. Like you're learning something different. So it's going to take some time. And they're like, okay, cool. Pressure's off. You don't have to win right now. (laughs) Like It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not a competition. We don't have the papers not firing back at us. And and like you said, it's either works or it doesn't. It's either efficient or it's not. I'll show you how to be more efficient. Like you said, now it's not about them being right or wrong. Again, if they learned to shoot 10 or 15 years ago, there were things that they were teaching back then that today is incredibly inefficient or it's still being taught today because it takes a while because you're on the tip of the spear. You're seeing all the new things. You're experiencing it. You're working on it yourself. So you're going to be privy to all these things five or 10 years before even these other organizations are. So that's why it's so important, in my opinion, to invest in training like with what you're doing, your books, consuming your content. Because if I can do that and just get one thing that may be the difference between, like you said, hesitation, life and death and the situational awareness stuff. People, I don't think they understand. I did security in Atlanta for a long time. So it was the same thing. Like you said, if you see somebody that's looking around a lot, they're not looking around for a buddy. They're looking around to see if there's a cop or there's witnesses and they're about to probably come at you. So understanding those keys, understanding what that means. And even then trying to avoid it, trying to escape that preemptively is what that's that 80-20 idea. We don't want to have to draw this weapon. We don't want to have to transition. We don't want to have to get into our vehicle and do whatever. But if we have no other choice, then it's nice to know that if I have to do this, that I know that I will be able to survive or I can protect somebody else that can't protect themselves. That's where this is something that we do without thinking about it. So hopefully you never need this, but if you do need it and you are practicing, why not practice appropriately? Why not practice efficiently? Why not practice in a way that will allow you to potentially win? In my opinion, it makes no other sense. Yeah. You got to set yourself up for success. I couldn't agree more, man. Well, I'd love also that you look at the individual person. So some people they've carried at four o'clock their entire life. It's going to be hard to change them. Even if you explain to them where the appendix is, if you explain to them how much more efficient this is, or they just want it the regular side, but it comes down to you're meeting them where they are. And then you're trying to say, listen, because I've had people in martial arts again, where you see a person and they're like a soup sandwich, everything is just jacked up. So in my mind, it's like, well, I can just tell them that from the ground up, they're just screwed. Or I can find one thing right now that I can correct that's pretty easy, that makes them believe that's a small win. And what does that do? That creates that momentum. And now they're more receptive. Now they're more receptive to other things. If I point out that I did this a lot and this is what happened to me in the process, now they're like, ooh, I don't want that to happen to me. And you're like, yeah, so let's do this. And now you've developed that trust, that rapport, the reciprocity comes in. Again, the pragmatic empathy, all these things that allow us to be a better not only teacher, but receptive to what the student is maybe not as receptive to. So we call them aha moments, like with a student or whoever you're working with. And I, I hate calling them students because that's like a weird, like I always, we always tell the people in the class, it's like, look, guys, we're going to learn as much from you as hopefully you do from us. Because it's a learning process for us too, especially when we work with law enforcement. We have several of them that were like the Michigan, we go to Detroit quite a bit. Was it the Sterling Heights shooting, that school shooting that happened? The officers that responded to that were at our class, several of them. Eye-opening. It really opened our eyes and some stuff. So we're always looking for that aha moment, right? Just like you said, you're creating that momentum. I do this a lot, man. I had a whole thing. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go with it. And then I, ooh, it trailed off. You're good. But bring it. Anyway. We'll get there. No, I've completely forgot it now. I apologize. <laughs> that's that's too many head injuries right there from the military. <laughs> I had like 20 something concussions and stuff. So I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. No, and we'll back it up because that's what happened to me. Like you said, when you put yourself in the position of that student, you're trying to learn, you're trying to understand. And chances are we've all been there in some way, shape or form. And here's the other part. If you have a group of even 10 people, that one person that's willing to stand up and say, I don't really get that. So that's a good point. So 
since we're talking about mentality and, and looking at all this, one of the things we do in a class is called the feeder receiver mindset. You ever heard of that? Absolutely. When you're holding the mitts. Yeah, yeah. So feeder receiver, right? So a lot of people show up to class and they show up to training and they're in a certain mindset where I'm getting the instruction. And you're like, cool. And then they step on the line to do it and they just start doing stuff. They're like, I don't get it. And it's like, well, are you a feeder right now or are you a receiver? They're like, ah, uh, what do you mean? It's like, you, you have to just have a mental shift, right? You have to go from the, I'm receiving the instruction and now I have to feed the task, okay? And they're like, what? So I think a lot of times in training, and you can look at this from law enforcement, right? Law enforcement has a lot of issues with training. It's got a lot of good things too. And every department is different. Every training academy is different. Every training, whatever. Everything's different. We used to say in the military, if you've seen one VSP, Village Stability Platform, which is like SF guys in Afghanistan, right? If you've seen one of those, you've seen one. They're all different. And I think it's very similar to law enforcement. But we have the feeder receiver mentality. You get the information and you receive it. And you think of what you're going to do to do that. You might develop your process or your focus, your cue. So instead of, you know, I'm just going to draw the gun out, I'm going to be like, touch, rotate, press to get that pistol out. We usually give them three. And then they step onto the line. So a lot of them are still just sitting there doing stuff, going, help me, you know, give me feedback. It's like, hold on, man. Now's the time to feed the task. Are you doing what you need to be doing? What's important right now? What's the real reason you are not being successful at the moment? And they go, okay, well, well, this. I'm like, no, what's the real reason? I'm like, uh, because I did this. What's the real reason? They're like, ah, it's because when I pressed the gun out, I did this. I wasn't focused here. And then I did, yeah, okay, cool. That's getting people to that feeder mentality. So switching over from, you know, receiving instruction to actually executing the task, that mental shift is a big deal. So feel, see, do is another way we get people to do that. So as soon as our thoughts, words, deeds, habits is another one. So thoughts, words, deeds, habits. I have my thoughts. I put them into words. I say them over and over and over again before I perform the deed. And then that deed becomes the habit. So we have them do that. And so that's kind of like the in-between point of when we're giving them instruction to they first get them alive. And we'll have them do that through drive fire. Or feel, see, do. What do you feel? Is what you're seeing confirming what you're feeling? Are you doing the right thing because of it? So they go, oh, so I need to feel, see, and do? I'm like, yeah, but it all starts with feel. Right. That's that cognitive side of learning. So especially when you learn a new task. So we try and frame as much of these things as possible so that they can be successful on the line. And like you said, we all have confirmation bias one way or another, right? So why don't we set ourselves up in a way to where that actually works for us, as opposed to, like you said, where we're just like continually putting a door up to where now there's no way I can learn from this guy. And again, that's what's so interesting. People can register, spend the money, take time off. But yet once they're there, it's like all that other shit doesn't matter. Right now, are you willing to take instruction? Right now, are you willing to understand why this is happening. And like you said, once you can kind of break through that, they already trust you because they wouldn't have spent the money unless they did. But in the military, you have the new guy, young guy, PT stud, and then you put him under some pressure and he's no longer running at the front of the pack or he's no longer comfortable with what's going on. And now all of a sudden he starts to question himself and then he falls apart, even though he has all the ability to do this in the world. He just started questioning, or it's harder than what he thought it was, or it's uncomfortable. It's like, that's the only way we can begin to learn any of this stuff. And that doesn't matter whether you're holding a weapon or trying to learn how to speak in front of a keynote. I mean, that's all the same. Yes. Kind of what you're saying reminds me of something that this guy, and I mentioned him, I think he's the mental guy, right? The performance dude. I talked about him and stuff. So great friend of mine. In a lot of ways, he's also kind of a mentor. Yeah, I've learned so much from him with the books and everything. And a lot of like, just me and him spitball in the office. So he explained something to me a long time ago. And he asked me, because I said something like, oh, it's just that guy's ego. And he was like, why? And I'm like, shit, I screwed up. I said something <laughs> dumb. And he's about to tell me why I said something dumb, but I'm really looking forward to this answer, right? So he kind of opened my eyes. He's like, is he go back? I was like, I, I feel like it's not, but everyone says it is, you know, because I was like, oh, it's just your ego. That's just your pride. And I was like, uh, yeah, I have pride in what I do. That makes it good. You know, like the pride makes me want to think, do things well. They're like, well, I meant it this way. I'm like, I don't care how you meant it. There's two types of pride. Well, there's two types of ego, two sides of the ego, excuse me. Um, and maybe you guys have talked about this before, but there's the positive side and there's the negative side. So for most people, when they think of ego, they automatically go to the negative. Why? Because it's America and everybody thinks about the negative. So we automatically go to the worst possible thing. Okay. And so we like egos bad, like shut up, hippie. So at the same time, I'm a bit of a hippie. So I say that tongue in cheek, but negative side of ego. I'm not good at this right off the bat. And I don't want to look bad in front of others. And I can't handle that. So therefore, 
I'm not going to do it. And it lines up very much with Carol Dweck's fixed and growth mindset. And then the positive side of ego, that person says, I don't care what it is. I don't care if I fail. I'm not going to allow myself to not be good at this. I don't care the failures that come with it. I don't care if I look bad. I'm going to humble myself and I will not allow myself to not be good at this eventually. And that's pretty much that growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about, right? And hers is much more in depth, but that ego is so incredibly important. And when we try and frame that, like I would tell people in classes, and I use classes a lot, let's, let's say a CQB class, right? So we do a lot of very difficult things in our CQB class. We teach them how to do CQB. And then we throw problem sets at them and we throw certain targets at them that they're like, they just freeze. And they're like, I don't even know what to do right now. I'm like, dude, just do your best. I'm like, okay, and we'll learn each time. Progress, not perfection. And so they, they keep going and they keep going. But with that said, like you'll get some of these guys that have been doing it a certain way and they come in and go, well, I think that target's dumb. I'm like, why? Because it validated or it did not validate your current SOPs and how you standard operating procedures and your tactics and your techniques because it forced you to slow down because you can only do CQB as fast as you can process information. And they're like, pretty much. Yeah, that's exactly why I don't like it. (laughs) Okay. So we read this, we have a brief and it's called the mindset brief. It is basically, it breaks down thoughts, words, deeds, habits. It breaks down, you know, who's the most dangerous person you know and why. Do they work out so that they can press chicks at the beach? It's like, no, not entirely. They do that because it's mission focused, you know, because they want it for the mission. And so they can crush another man's skull with a blunt object. And the specific person we're referencing in the brief has done it a couple of times, right? And they were all bad guys. And then it breaks down the feeder receiver mindset. And at the end, we just say the ego. It's like, I don't care where you're at. I care where you're going. Remember, you are where your feet are and what's important now. That's what win means, right? So just do what you're going to do, man. Just take that mindset and switch it over to that kind of ego and we will get better. But we're going to make you fail. And by failure, you're going to learn so much about what you're currently doing. And I'm not saying you have to do things exactly the way we do it, but you have to have the concepts down. And we teach everything for a reason. But at the end of the day, it's your gunfight, guys. You know, at the end of the day, you're the one that has to go in there confidently. And every time, man, we do a lot of single man CQB. So like officers responding to active shooters, we actually designed a course a couple of years ago as one to two man CQB. First day is single man, second day is two men. And we're going to expand that to three or four days. And we do force on force and stuff like that. And that is mind blowing for people. And it's like, well, can you do all that with just by yourself? And they're like, no. So I think having that ego, it goes a long way. So these guys show up. They do poorly. Some people get pissed, but for the majority of people, you got to have that aha moment. You have that buy-in and they see a lot of growth there. Pain and discomfort are the best teachers, always. And adversity is the thing that shines a light on all the stuff that we're not doing so well. Again, we put the pressure on there and now we start seeing where the cracks are. And it's important because I would rather figure that out in a controlled environment with you guys than in the heat of battle when somebody's life is on the line or somebody may not go home because I didn't have the humility to chuck my ego at least for a weekend and go in and say, you know what? I think Drew may know a little bit more about this than I do. I'm going to go ahead and just listen to what he has to say. I don't have to do it, but maybe I'll listen to it. And that's the beginning of that thing. And that's where adversity is beautiful if we're willing to see it as that. But many times we don't have the capacity to have hindsight now. So this is why it's important to have, like you were talking about these mindsets, these understandings of the learning mindset, the mentality of, listen, I am the feeder at this point, but I need to be willing to be able to step forward and actually put this into play or the receiver as opposed to the feeder kind of mentality. Even with CEOs, we see this when you start your own company, you have a CEO that comes up with an idea or a co-founder and all of a sudden it gets traction. And I was like, oh shit, I need more people to help me make whatever this is or scale whatever this is. You hire more people, but until they put themselves in that position of the team leader or the squad leader or the platoon leader, they're always going to be right there on the ground and they're not going to see their head's going to be down. They're not going to be up and out. And what you're talking about is very much the same thing. It's just that we're doing it with something that has a terminal intensity. It's an incredibly rewarding job. Like it is it's tremendous. We've met some of the most impressive human beings, you know what I mean? And like people say a lot about cops and I haven't seen a lot of those bad cops, you know, they're out there because every organization, every profession has got that. You can't avoid it. Nobody's hundred percent. But the people we've seen are some of the most humble, incredible, selfless people I've ever worked with. And it is, it's been eye-opening, man. It's been so rewarding to get to work with them, especially when they go, hey, man, guess what happened a week after that course? Or, you know, six months later, we had this. And then they give us feedback. And they send us stuff like, here's a write-up. Here's the news article. Here's the body cam video. Here's this. Here's what I learned. And we're like, 
dude, we never thought about that. So we sit around and all this stuff. But so in this job or within anything, opinions are really commonplace. So you get a lot of different viewpoints, you know, this, that, the other. And one thing we have, I started giggling when you said it because I thought of what my other instructor, Steve. So we have four instructors. Steve does CQB in law enforcement, right? He's a close quarters battle assault, you know, that kind of stuff. Room clearing is what for those people that don't know. Then we have Paul who does medical. He's a SWAT cop. So Steve is in the military with me. Paul does medical. And then Mitch does urban survival. And he's a SEER instructor for the Air Force, so it's a survival instructor. And we do some really cool shit out in Nashville. It's an urban survival course with like cell phones and secure messaging apps and like lanes set up in the city. But anyway, when you look at all this stuff and you get going, we talked about the ego, you know, and everything else. There's a lot of opinions out there. And Steve, I'll just tell you, so Steve's like, we you know what they say about opinions, right? He goes, opinions are like assholes. And he's like, yeah, he's like, they're all delicious. You know? <laughs> so it's like, the first thing I said about crying laughing, I fell out of my chair, I never heard it. But I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. There's opinions are for a reason. You know what I mean? So whether one instructor teaches one thing or one instructor teaches something different, we've all got something that got us from wherever we were at to be successful. And that doesn't mean my way is better than yours. It just means we took different roads to get to Rome. So I think with anything, we have people that come to us. We say, look, man, there's other ways to do this, but here's what we found works. So take that and apply it. So anytime someone comes, if they take 80% of what we do and what we talk about and they integrate that, that's a massive win because they're not us. We're not law enforcement. You know what I mean? But we're doing our best. So I really just wanted to say that opinion thing. So hopefully somebody out there uses it in conversation someday. But I was giggling so hard. I couldn't, I was like, Oh God, I got to say it now. <laughs> Keep it together. And with law enforcement, the friends that I have that are in law enforcement, like you said, like the job that they're asking this person to do, they had the luxury of being in a very safe, very controlled environment, looking at like the cam footage off the officer and saying, you should have done that. It's like, really, is there any other time in your life when you could do the same thing? It's like, no, you can't really hold it. I mean, I know bad things happen, but dude, you're not the one that's in it. You're not the one that's trying to figure out escalation of force at this point. You're already three steps behind. What do you have to do now to survive? And so it's an impossible task in many aspects. And so to expect them to have this huge standard, and like you said, the pay, the overwork, because just that martial component is like 10% of their job. The rest of it is, again, SOPs. The rest of it is paperwork. The rest of it is protocols. The rest of it is trying to understand all these other things. So literally, if they don't have this skill set like honed, then last resort is I have to draw this weapon. And then they may not even be able to retain the weapon. How many officers have it taken away from them? So there's a lot of things that can go wrong in the process. So that's why, again, the officers that I know are tremendous. There's always going to be bad. There's always 10% of the bad stuff. And that's what the media always populates, just like lawyers or doctors or anything else. That's it. And so two of the best cops I've met, one in particular is a highway, Oklahoma Highway Patrol. Have you heard of Brian Costanza? I haven't, but if he's a Oklahoma hypo, then he's got a mob respect. Google him. Okay. Google this guy. He is one of the most professional. His questionnaire, when he came to one of the first courses, I literally read his questionnaire and I almost got emotional. I was like, oh my God, this guy is what a man should be. You know, he's like, I tried to set the standard for my boys, right? My wife and all this stuff. He has that video of him shooting through the windshield. He's driving his Tahoe and he's shooting on the highway, his rifle through the window. He does like a, on the American Warrior podcast with Seeklander, he does like a three hour, basically case study on it, like a breakdown. And that's it. He says every single thing he did wrong. He did most of the things right, but he just breaks down. I should have had this. I should have had that. I should have done this. I should have done that. You guys got some good cops out there, man. You said you're in Oklahoma, but guys like, they just reminded me of that. He's a great guy to look at. Phenomenal dude. And that's kind of why I think adversity is powerful for us. It's a learning tool if we're willing to be humble enough to put our ego aside in the process. And if we're fortunate enough to survive the altercation, to be able to go back and say, this is what I should have done. I should have done this. And I know that to be in the position that you're in now, you had to face some tremendous adversity. What I found is that people that are successful are able to experience it, process it, and then elevate from it. Can you give us an example of a hardship or an adversity that you faced at the time you didn't think you were going to be able to get through, but yet you were able to get to the other side? And then in retrospect, what were the gifts from that experience for you? So I've always been a pretty good athlete for the most part. But I've had a lot of injuries and I grew up in Texas. So what do you do in Texas? You play football. That's what you do. You play football. It's the religion. Yep. Yes. And so I played football since I was a kid on and even up to college for a little bit. But I had a lot of injuries, I had a lot of head injuries. I had my shoulder. If I sneezed wrong, it would pop out. So I had shoulder reconstruction. Found out I started hurting my back, you know, when I was younger and then fell, I broke my back in college and then, or excuse me, and full on in the military. So I've broken my neck 
I have my neck fused. I broke my back. I'm, you are not fusing my back. The guy who did my neck was like, do not let them, no matter what they say, fuse your back. I was like, thank you, Dr. Mann. And he was the one fusing my neck. Uh, I've had both knees done, left ankle reconstruction, right shoulder reconstruction. They told me I needed like three more surgeries. I was Jeez. like, absolutely not. No way. <laughs> so I am not doing this again. So I've always had that kind of held me back. But at the end of the day, the biggest adversity, I would say, at the end of the day, you just put your head down and keep going. And it's consistency is key. And I think the biggest thing is the doubt. When you show up and you get into, you know, I remember when I got the word that I got selected for SF. I was there. I didn't think I was going to get picked. And I remember like you're all staying in this group and they have, they just call off roster numbers. If you were called to this roster number, you go in that building. Called this roster number, you go in that building. It's like, nope. And I saw this one dude. I was like, that guy is such a shitbag. If he got called to this building, I was like, I'm out. If that guy made it, then I'm looking around like, what? And turned out that guy wasn't too bad. So they kind of knew what they were doing. And then I still didn't like him. Screw him. But so maybe it was personal. I don't know. <laughs> so I got called in there. And then they think, you got selected. They started playing the Battle of the Green Berets. And they told us to stand up. And I was like, is this a joke? Did I make it? And then the whole time through it, I mean, we had guys that I think probably the most challenging thing for the Q course was learning a language. So we had to take a test. And it's called the D-Lab, Defense Language Aptitude Battery. Basically says, how good will you be at learning a different language? And I got, if like 70, it's like a 70, like 140 scale or something like that, kind of like the ASVAB or something weird. Like 70 is considered like the minimum to get. I got a 54. So like they were like, Spanish is going to be tough for this idiot. And I remember they called it off and I had a decently high ASVAB score. And I remember originally they called it off and they were like, yep, Estel, you got Arabic. And I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> like, no way. There is no way in hell you gave me Arabic. Did you see my scores? And they were like, good luck. I'm like, uh, you know, which worked out the best for me. And I actually did end up not doing too bad. I made the bare minimum in the course, in the key course. They're like, this is all you got to do to pass. And I was like, I'm shooting for that. Well, over time, I got better at it. And I, you know, I learned how to say a few things and have general conversation. That's perishable. But for me, there was that doubt every single day. And we're doing language six days a week, eight to 10 hours a day. It was like eight in the morning or nine in the morning to like four or five in the, at night. Monday to Friday. And then on Saturdays, you're going in for half days, which were like four hours, four or five hours. And it was condensed down to 13 weeks, 13 weeks nonstop of this. It was the most miserable experience of my entire life. My teacher was a saint, Manar Zaki, Egyptian lady. I'll still never forget her. She was the sweetest lady. She's the reason I passed, right? She really helped me because I probably shouldn't have. So every day you're going in there and there's just doubt. And we got a guy in my class who's got a photographic memory. I still, I'm not going to say his name, but I still know him. He came to fifth group with me. He's a genius. But he would just look at shit and just hear it once, see it once, knew it. I was like, how are you doing this? He's like, I'm cheating. I have a photographic memory. I was like, yeah, fuck you. All right. So me and the other dude who was like a Ranger Battalion guy, we're in there like sounding like rednecks. We're like, it's me, Bill Camels. And Menard's just like, you are so stupid. You know, but like when you hear every day when guys are joking, like, bro, I don't know if you're going to pass, bro. I'm like, fuck, you know, that just weighs on you. And it's like, well, what can you do? It's like, you can only do what you can do. So sit at home. Look at your damn flashcards, you know, listen to your Pimsleur, you know, and your Rosetta Stone and all that stuff. And even the crappy ones that, you know, the army tried to make, which were horrible and didn't, weren't useful at all. Do all that. Go for a run, put it in your headphones. Like, what can you do? So for me, I'm not a very good runner either. Like I'm a sprinter, but like long distance, not the best. So I try and go and runs on like Friday nights and Saturday nights. If, you know, if I was broke and don't want to go out or I just was tired of the party life. I'm not really me. I've done enough of that. So I would just listen to the podcast, excuse me, listen to those tapes. It's like, I can only do what I'm going to do. You know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And God, I'm pretty spiritual guy, religious Christian, and God is going to help me out. And, you know, he's going to, steer me in the right direction. So for me, it was just do what you can do. So shutting out that like, bro, if Drew passes, it'll be a miracle. Like Arabic, like you're great at everything else, but phew, buddy, Arabic is not your thing. Like I know if he passes, like there's hope for anybody, right? Like that was like the going joke that wore me out 13 weeks of that. Remember I got that test. I thought it was a failure. I was like, I don't know how it's going to happen. And I got my score back and I was just like, fall to my knees. I was like, Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You know, like I did it. Everything else is easy. But for me, that was the hardest thing I could ever do. Well, then, you know, you get to the team. It's like, well, I'm not the biggest guy, not the smallest guy, not the fastest guy, not the smartest guy, not the best shooter, not this. It's like, I think the biggest obstacle for me is when you're surrounded with a group of people that are, and a lot of people use the term alpha, right? Or sigma mentality, like whatever. You're just around people that are high achievers and they're good people and they work hard. And honestly, it's the guys you've looked up to your whole life. And then you meet these dudes. 
that self-doubt creeps in. You are never going to perform when you step into something as well as you want to. So accepting that and being like progress, not perfection, you know, I am, I am where my feet are or what's important right now or work on what you can work on or whatever you want, pennies make dollars, whatever little term you want to throw in there. That was really important for me because if I hadn't stayed that course, I will eat myself alive. I'm the most hypercritical person of myself more than anybody else in the world. And that would have destroyed me. So I think for me, getting back to your question, overcoming adversity. I had to overcome that. I could physically perform. I've had a lot of injuries. So the, the pain was there. So I'm always working on my body and having to work through pain and everything else. Like I go on a ruck march and like I can hardly walk the next day. My feet are all broken to shit. I they're just my ankles are just jello. It's constant pain. I'm in pain 24-7. I'm actually doing better now than I ever have been. But honestly, I would take that any day of the week over the Arabic and the self-doubt and then wondering if I'm going to make it. So for me, that was my adversity. That was something I had to overcome. And that was the self-induced stress, right? That's that emotional stress. And in a lot of ways, it was social stress, right? So you look at the different types of stress, physical, cognitive, social, emotional. For me, that equated to the social stress, me comparing myself to others, which has been something very, very difficult that I've struggled with my whole life. That person, you know, I'm outperformed them, but this person does that. It's like, bro, you're not that person and they're not you. So shutting that out. I mean, when that happens, what happens? Well, emotional stress, which is self-induced. I put that on myself. This is all unneeded. Why am I doing this? So living that way for years, I would say that was probably my adversity. It may be better. It may be tougher. It may be stronger. Maybe all those things. But at the same time, it probably shaved five years of my life. I'd probably have a heart attack five years before I would have, you know, if I hadn't have put myself through that. I wish I would have known, but it also wouldn't have shaped me to be who I am today. That's powerful. And so there are people that face that kind of adversity and they never get beyond it. Is this something that can be taught or are these people just sort of doomed to be? Because we see people that they get out of high school, they get out of college and they have these expectations. And then when their cognitive bias or their blind spots are revealed to them and they get stuck there. And now they're like, well, this should be easy or, well, I'm entitled to these things and they're not. When they're punched in the mouth like that, they have no, I don't want to say resiliency, but they just don't have a thick enough skin to step back up and say, no, I'm going to learn this thing. Because in their mind, that's what all this work up to 22 was preparing them for. But as a matter of fact, that's never the case. I think so. When you ask what can they do to overcome that, I would say educating yourself about all that and reading the books, right? Positive and negative side of ego, fixed and growth mindset. Once you start understanding all how this works, you understand how it works together and the why, you can go, oh, I get it. That's why this happens. And then I think outside of that, when you really have that block, if you're not going to do that, about the only thing you can do is go do an ayahuasca trip, right? <laughs> or get on some, you know, get some psychedelics and have your 20 years of therapy in two days, you that's know what it, I mean? Yep. And just get freaking, you know, like, yeah. that's about it, man. Like if you want the shortcut, Go do ayahuasca, you know, get all Joe Roganified or, you know, whatever <laughs> and do mushrooms and have a spiritual journey where you can see inside your own brain and look inward and figure out what's wrong with you and realize these things. If that's not really an option, we'll start educating yourself because I honestly feel like people like therapy, right? And everybody's done some form of counseling or therapy, you know, and stuff around, you know, there's no shame in it. It's fucking cool, right? Why the hell would I spend years talking to somebody who really doesn't know me or know what's going on inside and is just interpreting my words and doesn't have like the warrior's heart mentality. How can you understand what I've been through if you haven't done it yourself, right? You're just some college educated. A lot of them are great people, I'm sure. There's a lot of schmucks in that profession too. So for me, what worked better was I just educate myself. I learned as much as I can and I can apply it to myself. So I think if you're, it's one of those two things. So I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's my answer. And that's what I want. I want to answer that's from your experience because you truly are qualified to have that opinion and that knowledge. It, even you were talking about Preston before. He talked about during that episode, he's like, every time he starts a new book, he's like riddled with self-doubt. I'm like, you're Stephen fucking Preston. How can you think that? He's like, because every book is different. Just like every campaign for Alexander was different. He was like, it's a new problem. It's not the same. The territory has changed. The winds are different. And it's a new problem every single time. So if we can learn to leverage that, if we can learn to have these micro adversities that give us that ability to start leading into it a little bit, that gives us a beginning point. But if we don't, everybody forgets that adversity is coming for us one way or another, whether it be the 2020, whatever happened then, or the 2008 housing crisis, all that stuff. Younger people have not really experienced that yet before, but it is in route as we speak. So you can either do what you can to prepare, whether it be with a weapon, whether it be physically, whether it be mentally or emotionally or spiritually, financially, 
or you can just sit there and allow yourself to be a victim. But you're not a victim at that point, you're a volunteer. And if that's the case, then there's nothing that we can do for you. But I'm hoping that this conversation will really not only be a light bulb that comes off, but some of the stuff we may have heard before, but the way that Drew's putting it, maybe that eighth touch, as they would say in advertising, where that's the one that's like, okay, I've heard it, but the way that he said it, that really made sense for me. And that's the goal. Yeah. You got to hear the same thing multiple ways until one clicks. You know what I mean? And like, I've heard the same thing over and over and over in my life. And then you hear that one little thing and you're like, oh, that's, that's how you meant that. You're like, oh, thank God. I love what Stephen Pressfield said in Neil's podcast when he was like, the bigger, the more adverse, something along the lines of the more adversity, the bigger the dream, the bigger the payoff or the reward, or however you want to put that. I thought that was so great, man. So I hope people... So hearing him talk about his books where he was like, you know, like, oh, anxiety behind the books release and everything else. When my books came in, I got the first box, like 50, the publisher sends you. I wouldn't open them. I just sat there and stared at them. And I was like, I was like, I'm a fraud. I'm this. What is this? You know, and I had people who were like very good friends who would tell me they don't bullshit you. None of my friends would tell me what I want to hear. Like when we get around each other, like. We all just rip on each other nonstop. And if there is one little opening, you bet we're going to exploit it, right? Like yeah, yeah. it's tough being, being friends with our group. You know what I mean? But we're also very compassionate. People would do anything for each other and truly caring. You, we got both sides of it. But I remember sitting in those books and I was like, why did I do this? This was stupid. Who the fuck am I? You know? And like, I had guys tell me like, I'm genuinely telling you this book is a great book. You've done a great job. A couple of people that kind of helped me read it and proofread it and put some stuff together and ideas. They were like, this is a great book, man. I was like, I don't feel like it is. You know, I, I feel like a fraud, you know, and I'm just sitting here. I wouldn't open it. Luckily, it's gone well. You know, looking back at it, I'm like, oh, okay. It's never as bad as you make it out to be. And but it was tough, man. And hearing Stephen Pressfield's like that, I'm like, bro, you're Stephen Pressfield. Shut your mouth. Like, you're fine. You could write anything and people would be like, oh, brother, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm just a schmuck that shoots guns, you know? So that was really cool hearing that from him, like hearing him say that. I'm like, <sighs> but then it made it worse. I'm like, well, if he feels that way, I should definitely feel that way. <laughs> Wait, I'm starting to feel good about myself. And now Preston's yeah. like, ah, oh, I'm yeah. trash. It's like, okay. Yeah. It's never as bad, you know? And I've seen some other people out there and I'll say this, the reason I wrote a book was because I looked around, I was like, that idiot wrote a book. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. If that moron can write one. I'm fine. You know what I mean? But then the other side creeps in. So I try and go back to the wolf. That person can do it. I can definitely do it because it's that look who we're talking about here. You know, like I know that person They're whatever. And I'm not talking about shooting world or anything, just in general, we see that kind of stuff. So, you know, like if the Kardashians wrote a book, I'd be like, Jesus, I can write a book. You know, So that's more what I'm talking about. Which former whoever wrote a book, some political person, like, didn't they get caught doing something weird in a fern or something or something like that. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. So like, that's generally how I stay on my, I keep my mental sanity. Our Kardashians read a book, but whatever. I'll be fine. It keeps us honest for sure. Yeah, yeah. Drew Estelle, where can we learn more about you? Where can we come train with you? Where can we purchase your book? Tell us about your line of clothing and your, I can't wait to get the shooting belt. I'm excited to have that as my everyday carry. Yeah, brother. We're going to send you one of those. So our website is bearsolutionsllc.com. That's B-A-E-R solutions, LLC.com. So basically we do training, right? We do all kinds of training from urban survival to medical, to CQB, to law enforcement, military, pistol one, pistol two, and rifle one, rifle two. That's our bread and butter, right? Where most people come. But on there, we get a lot of free resources. So you can check out the book on there, which you can buy through the website. You can also buy the book on Amazon. And that's Process and Progress Pistol Training, written by me. So you can get on there. We have some free supporting stuff like downloads. Like we got vision drills, how to improve your vision. If you're cross-eyed dominant, it doesn't matter what sport. You can train that out. People don't know that. And there's all these charts and stuff you can print off and training plans and stuff that comes straight from the templates, you know, and the style is straight from what we do. So that's all on there for free to download. The other company we have, so with Bear Solutions, we do have tactical products. We have war belts, you know, mag pouches, stuff like that coming out this year, which we may have to patent something on them. I'm not sure because we did some really different stuff. I think it's pretty cool. So, but I'm not sure yet. And then our other company is called Agonic, A-G-O-N-I-C. And that website is liveagonic.com. And so is the social media for all these two. It's all the same for each one. That's what we're like super pumped about. That's the, the belt that we have that does not look tactical. It looks like a regular belt. We call it the everyday belt. We got multiple colors. We got pants that we just got them in. We got to get them up in the... I hope by the time this comes out, they'll be on the website. They should be. Yeah, they'll be out on the website. We got brown, 
like a tannish gray or whatever dirt. We call it dirt because that's where like, it looks like dirt. That's how smart we are. And then we have a gray color too. So we're very original. All right, Marcus. So they, uh, just like the military yeah. <laughs> orientate <laughs> your weapon. That's not a word, Sergeant. Shut the it, is okay. it is now. <laughs> now Roger that. I'm yeah. tracking. Okay. Oh my God. Yeah. So we don't want with a gun, like anything to look tactical, but like we shoot guns, we survive, we camp, we hunt, you know, we do everything that, the outdoor industry. So we don't shy away from guns, but that's what that is. So imagine like if Patagonia put firearms in ads, you know? Dude, that's badass. And real quick, I know that we got to go, but for those of you that are like, no, I just want to look like an operator. I want to have the wraparounds. I want to have the hat. I want to have the shirt. It's like, there's a time for that, I guess. But like, if I'm trying to walk into a room and assess, if I look like that to a person who is even remotely aggressive, I'm going to stand out like a sore thumb. And again, we're military guys. I've got a shaved head. You know, I work out, I wear black, but at the same time, if you're wearing pants like that, or if you have a belt that doesn't look like the typical 5'11", now you're, you stand yeah. So it's a little bit more of like the kind of gray man mentality. And again, I have a lot more ability to move. If I can shake hands, smile, be nice to somebody, don't have my shades on. And now I just look like a person that's gregarious the whole time. I'm checking my six. I'm looking around. I'm looking who's paying attention, who's not who's glued to their phone and who's not. Even when I go for a walk with my wife, we always wave around the neighborhood. She's like, you're friendly. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm looking to see who's going to wave back because that person is at least paying attention. And if they're not, then when I do it, I'm like, okay, Blue Dodge, stay away from that one. He's going to run us over the road if we're doing that. So there's a reason for all this stuff we're doing, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, brother. It's been an honor. Thank you for your time. Thank you for what you're doing. I can't wait to get out there and train with you guys. Come out and train with you, obviously with Ian as well, and get some time to get out there and put some shots down range and put my ego aside and learn. Dude, come on out, man. We'd love to have you. It'd be amazing. So just let me know which class. We'll be in Oklahoma next year. So There it is. I'm out of excuses, right? There you go. Thank you, brother. <laughs> All right, buddy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.